Hello, welcome to part two of Cosmic Shambles, questions from the Melbourne uh, audience. There were just such a large number of them, we didn't manage to cover even, I think, uh, one-tenth of them on stage. Uh, part one, we've covered uh, many ideas of uh, black holes and uh, Tau and uh, the rings of Saturn versus what may be going around the equator of the planet Earth. Now we are on to part two. We are joined again by Matt Parker, Lucy Green, Helen Chersky and Katie Mack. And the first question <coughs> is, this is one, physicists are going to like this. My dad told me that physics is the one true science. Is he correct? <laughs> well, we've, we've obviously got a, um, an unbiased panel here. Um, but there's no, there's, I mean, it's, there's a gate, right? You can either play the game of going, there is one true science and we can all have a big scrap about which one it is. Or you can just go, isn't it wonderful that you can look at the world on lots of different levels? And if you want to look at it on the level of sort of atoms and molecules or the universe or describe it in that term, then physics is great. But frankly, if you want to know what a frog is doing, not much use to you. Um, so <laughs> Unless it's levitating. Unless it's levitating. There are some interesting things. Oh, frogs, you know, there are, I mean, frogs do do interesting things. I did a, a series a, a while ago about animal um, uh, senses and, and the sort of sound and light. And it astonished me that biologists have not worked out how, well, you know, frogs, some frogs have this sort of a great big flap of skin underneath their chin that, mm. that helps them call. Biolo biologists don't know what the mechanism is. And all the mm. physicists come in and go, oh, well, is it this sort of acoustics or that sort of acoustics? What kind of resonator is it? And the biologists kind of go, oh, I don't know, it just goes, you know, <laughs> but so I, 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 even though I'm a physicist and I did physics because I wanted to explain things at that level and I felt I could dig down and that was the real world, I, I don't want to set up these battles. I, yeah. don't, I don't see well, why we have a, to have a fight about it. It's an interesting because I, I know that it's normally joking when people say it's physics. Though I do believe that Brian Cox, I really believe that underneath it all. Um, and I think sometimes uh, the emotional spectrum he has shows uh, that he's dealing with fundamentals uh, rather than uh, broader elements. But that it depends, I suppose, what is science meant to do? So if you go, is it merely meant to get right to the bottom of what's the most fundamental thing in the universe and why did the universe begin? And that's it, that's the whole question. Then you'd go physics. But what are you, I mean, Katie, what, what for you is the, uh, what, what is science setting itself out to achieve? I mean, I think science is, is a wonderful method that we can use to study the world and our surroundings and the universe and, and relationships between people and society. And there are so many things you can do with science. And I don't, I don't think there's any point in saying that, that one, is, one part of it is more true or more pure than another. I think that you know, the more things that we can use science to do, the better, you know, the, the, if we have, um, you know, if we have people who are using science to learn about life or, or chemistry or, you know, uh, the atmosphere or, or um, you know, how um, people, how humans uh, talk to each other or whatever, like, I think that those are all, are all good things. So, you know, it, it, yeah, it, there, there's this sort of idea that science is all about just you know, finding ultimate truth, uh, the ultimate truth of, of existence. And I think for the most part, you know, most of what we do is we build models, the mathematical models that describe things, and those are useful or not. And if they're not useful or they break at some point, we replace them and we refine them. But um, I think that most of the time, you know, those of us working in science are not so much chasing ultimate truth as trying to learn about you know, the universe and better ways to describe the world and better things we can do with that. So, you know, it, it's, I think there's a bit of a misconception about what science is for that gets people into big arguments about purity. 
Do you think the physics are, when people do say that, is it because perhaps with physics the answers that you can get to uh, are considered by some people to be more exact than some of the answers that we might get to in, in biology? So if you're looking for being able to say that this equation, therefore, that we, we can put it this simply, is that where it comes from, you think? Uh, well, perhaps. I think there's, there's definitely a beauty in simplifying. <clears throat> there's definitely a beauty in simplifying the mathematics and the, phys the equations behind the physics. But I think it's, for me, there's, there's the part of the sort of blue skies research and the, and the drive to generate more knowledge, but then there's also the part which is about how do we use what we've learned to help humanity as well. And you, know, you could take that really to an extreme and say, right, okay, well, in many, many years' time, we're thinking what would humanity do when the Earth's either not habitable anymore or we've I don't know, for whatever reason, looking to go onto Mars, which is like a classic big big um, uh, topic people are peripherally working on. And to do that, then, well, your, your beautiful equations will be used, but you also need to have biology, chemistry, engineering, sociology, psychology, all these things need to come together to, to solve the really big picture problems. And so for me, I don't, I don't really separate these things out. It's just all about the, the quest to learn more, but also to to use that knowledge as well. The science is about making predictions. Like That's what science does. It produces models based on mechanisms that we think we understand that allow us to make a prediction. And if a model doesn't make a prediction that's useful, we don't, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it might be a description, but it's not actually a scientific model. And I think that you use different models for different situations. So you might use a population model if you want to understand frogs on a mountainside. Um, you don't want a model of atomic physics to do that because it doesn't work at that level. And if you want to understand, you know, economics, you need a model of economics that works mm -hmm. at the level of people and interactions and businesses. And so it's just, it's you, you, the science will produce lots of different models and you need to pick the one which is most appropriate for what you're looking at. Um, and the, the complexity is a really big issue because that's when these things become, you know, wound together. So um, in my, you know, my field, looking at bubbles in the ocean, there's all these things, very small things to do with surface temperature and viscosity, and that's hard enough on the scale of small bubbles. And then you have to kind of work out the implications of that as you go up the size scales and time scales, and you have to go, what does a whole bubble plume do? What does a whole, what do all the bubbles in a storm do? What implications does that have for a planet? And connecting those different models together is really hard. And, and it is difficult, isn't it? Because now we've got to the point where we are far beyond a person being able to hold in their head mm -hmm. the entirety of science knowledge. So you think about you know, organisations like the Royal Society in Britain that were founded in 1660 and probably at that time there was you know, very little known and the scientists could be a broad scientist but now it's really challenging for me to know, you know what Helen's doing or what Kate is doing so that I can then see any uh, possibilities of, of learning from that and linking the ideas together and finding the relevant models. So it's a, it's a big challenge for scientists and it's a big challenges, challenge for funders to be able to set up a mechanism by which we can work on our narrow, deep areas, but also bring in other areas that are relevant too. Is that Matt? Does it come down to think about the the joke that ends? Let us presume the cow is spherical. That uh, physics is a great tool for many things, but for instance, in farming, quite often initially. You can have, yeah, in farming, you have to take air resistance into account and those kinds of things. I mean, to be honest, I tuned out for a lot of that because uh, if you're far enough back, all science looks the same, to be entirely honest, which, I mean, is, is the go-to snide comment from the mathematician. But uh, also, I think for the general public, for a lot of people, if you're not in one of these areas of, of science, if you step far enough back, you're just like, oh, it's, it's science, right? And, and you'll find this, like, 
when you do like uh, phone-ins or people bring questions, they're like, oh, we've got physicists so-and-so with us today. Throwing up, oh, my knee's a bit sore or this or the other. And so I think, I think that, that it's fun to argue in between, but then, I mean, for a lot of people, science is this, you know, unified thing. And but also, if, if science is a method, yeah. then mm -hmm. that makes the question... Anyway, so you'll be glad to know the next question is for you, Matt. Oh, excellent. Uh, what's your favourite remaining mystery in mathematics? Oh, my goodness. They're... There, there, there are more remaining mysteries in mathematics than people expect. My favourite is... Oh, that's probably a different... Um, so, in the big one, which I meant to say, is the um, Riemann hypothesis, which is that if you take uh, numbers and you put them through this unusual process and then you plot them, for some reason, thing, the, the prime numbers line up incredibly well. And we don't know why and we can't prove that they always do that. But so much math since then has gone, well, assuming that's true, this, right? And so we're kind of building a big section of the house of mathematics on a bit of foundation that we haven't double-checked. And if that ever proves to be incorrect, then everything else... Um, will come crumbling apart. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, it, it's really hard to fully get your head around how and why that works. I like, there are some smaller bits of maths no one's ever done. No one's ever found a magic square, a three by three magic square where all the numbers are square numbers as well, which is kind of fun. No one's ever found a brick, something called an Euler brick, where you have integer lengths for all of the edges of your your cuboid brick. You have integer diagonals for all the faces, and you have an integer, what's called the space diagonal, which is one of the greatest names of maths, which is the two uh, corners, the greatest distance apart. No one's ever found, a but no one's ever managed to prove that doesn't exist, right? And so I like the fact that there are these huge bits of maths we don't know, but there's also these kind of fun little trivial things which we haven't quite got our head around, and a lot of kind of amateur mathematicians uh, work on these things or develop programs to search for these things and uh, I think that's great. Anyone like to add mystery of mathematics or are you all fine? And we'll move on to the next one which is do we make a science school just for women? We get to school and just get pushed out. A science school just for women, so I think that made all of us wince. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, mean, I presume this is someone for, who is at school and has, has felt kind of pushed out from... Yeah. The problem we've got, really, is that for all... There's things that we can do, sort of, we as a scientific community and science teachers, and then there's all of the culture, which is, like, the rest of the world. And there's things that we can do and we can try, but fundamentally, we're still... The people we're, we're talking to and talking with are... You know, we're all gendered. We were brought up in a gendered culture. I... I sort of, I'm maybe slightly hypocritical about this because I went to an all-girls uh, secondary school and the best thing about it was just there were, it was never an issue. It just, you know, there were just people and we studied things and that was the end of it. And and a lot of people come to me now and say, oh, well, you went to an all-girls school and that, that was a, um, an advantage. But it's very noticeable and there's research showing, I think, that um, mixed-gender teams work better later in life. So, because, because you don't get the, the sort of worst of each set of extremes. So I have also worked in an almost all-female group in a physics department, and that was weird. I've worked in a lot of all-male groups, except for me, and I've worked in this one all-female group, except for one poor bloke. And they were both dysfunctional. They're both dysfunctional in different ways. So I think, on one hand, the, really the battle is not to separate everyone off, it's just to get everyone used to working together. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but it is, it is a tough... And that comes in educating the 
the the other half of the species and in giving them because what happens is you know women are saying oh well we want uh, you know we want to sort of equality when it comes to doing things and I think the th- the, the flip side is that our schools don't necessarily give men boys the uh, equality of emotions and that they're told they have to behave emotionally in a certain way and that's what causes the consequences for the women and so they're both both those things come together women are not going to get job equality until men get emotional equality and there are two men in the room so maybe I'm woman-splaining I don't know <laughs> but um, but you know but that those two things come together it's not about separating them out and making the differences worse it's about working out how to allow everyone to just grow up a little bit differently so that they're more accepting yeah. of yeah, I mean, this is something that I that I think about a lot. So, I mean, all of us here spend time going into schools. And then I'm also a governor at a London school. And so these kind of issues get talked about. And I guess my reaction before I started getting heavily involved with schools was that you shouldn't separate out and that you should have girls and boys being educated together. But I think there are actually legitimate times where separating out is a good thing. And one of the things that we found is that when girls are in the science classroom okay they've got all kinds of um, messages being given to them but one aspect that's come out quite strongly is the aspect of resilience and so what uh, one of the initiatives that's been that's been carried out in the school that i'm heavily involved with is to have girls only sessions which are looking at building resilience and the teacher was telling me that she sets these um activities where actually they're designed for the students to fail but you know it, the point is how do you deal with that lack of success and, and this is the the science teacher who's running these projects and i think it's a really important part because you've got to have resilience in science things don't always work it's super super competitive you know it's dis- it needs to be um, carried out in a way where people pick your theories apart and that's how things move forward so if you can't take that then it's going to be a really unhappy experience for you and and then there are other issues around so if you have a mixed class the boys are much more likely to put their hands up and interact and ask questions and so when the girls don't get engaged by the teachers then that they stop they stop putting their hands up um, and then there are other aspects around how the girls like to give their information as well you know they've been sort of t- encouraged to be neat and tidy and don't make mistakes so there are differences that are coming through very early on in the school system because of lots of different reasons and so there might be particular um, activities that you want to do where you take the girls out of the class I mean I, I mean I'm, I'm on the side of uh, you know try and change larger culture as much as possible and really create and train teachers to know how to support people of all genders in their classrooms. I think, you know, I mean, one of the problems with with splitting boys and girls is that then you lose all the gender diverse people and then that that becomes a big issue as well. But, you know, I think that, yeah, fundamentally, there, I mean, there there might be there might be times when when you really do need to take people who are um, who are facing certain kinds of socialization and try and counter that um, and try and you know try and support people in in particular ways, but um, but I also think that that it's far too common that that teachers will um, not not know how to support um, students who have been socialized to act in particular ways and to to present their you know their learning and their and um, you know their efforts in different ways 
And, you know, so you end up with these really sort of broken social systems within classrooms that sort of build on themselves. And, and you know, I think that, that if we can change how schools deal with that, that can be part of changing how the wider culture deals with that. And I, I, I would hope that we can sort of evolve toward that. I mean, I, I, I spoke recently to a friend of mine who's um, doing an undergraduate degree in, um, I think, engineering. And and she's the only girl in her class, and and the boys are all, you know, making inappropriate jokes and 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 giving her a hard time. And she talked to the teacher, and he was like, "Oh well, you know, the boys are just like that. You know, you're just gonna have to learn to deal with it." And that's not what the teacher should be doing. And and I, you know, I really hope that um, that teachers can be taught to, you know, better create a, a supportive atmosphere for everybody in the classroom. One of the things that is changing, I think, that's very positive is that, um, and I've had teachers say this to me, I don't know what the experience at the, the school you work with is, but um, is that one of the things that's really helping is YouTube videos. Because in the past, if you were a girl and you wanted to learn, you know, woodworking or something that is considered to be gendered male, you had to walk into that classroom mm. of all the male, you know, engineers or whatever it was, and you had to face that. Whereas now you, you can look up a YouTube video. And you can do that by yourself. And you don't need to walk into this socially pressured situation mm. until you've at least got some familiarity with it. And so I've had teachers coming up to me and saying, it's brilliant. They just go off. You know, they go off and look at the coding videos and all these things. And they don't feel held back because they just bypass that mm. whole thing. And at some point, they will have to come back into it. And obviously, you have right. to deal with it. But I thought that was really encouraging mm. that it's yeah. just actually the openness of learning and, you know, we sort of talk about people learning, you know, whether we're stressed about everyone just being in their own little world and in their own, watching their own little phone rather than talking to people. But actually, maybe it can have a benefit if you then mm. don't get the negative pressures yeah. as you're learning. Yeah. Right, we're going to do, uh, we'll just go rapidly through the final ones. Uh, this is from Declan, uh, who's age 10. Uh, this one is for you, Matt. How many pies would it take to recreate Sagittarius A? Oh, that's a star oh, eye, shouldn't Yeah, that's Sagittarius A. Uh, do they mean Sagittarius A star, the black hole at the center of the galaxy? They well do. Oh. Well, so for a 10 year old, a... that's a very poorly structured <laughs> question. Uh, what is, does anyone know the mass of that? It's about, four, it's about 4 million times the mass of the sun. Uh, okay, once the mass of the sun is your mass unit, uh, how many <laughs> Earth masses in the sun? Oh, millions. Millions. <laughs> okay, so what, were, what was your multiple? Four, four million. Four million. You were millions as yeah. well. So it's something around a thousand billion. I, I, I should know the, I should know the mass. Well, That's I know fine. The Let's just call sun. it about the, 10 to the 18. The mass of the sun is a 10 to the power 30 kilograms. So if you know the mass of the Earth, then, then you could do that conversion. What was, what, what was the mass of the sun? Mass of the sun, 10 to the 30 kilograms. Okay, 10 to the 30, we like yeah. that. And you were giving me on the order uh, million, of... 4 million solar masses. Okay, let's just call that 10 to the 6. So it's about 10 to the 36 kilos, yep. give or take. I've lost some lead digits and a pi is not quite a kilo. So I would say it's probably around uh, 10 to the 37 pies. Brilliant. Katie, uh, why do we think dark matter must be something different? Why is that a better explanation than it's more matter? Ah, um, so it doesn't act like regular matter. Uh, there are a couple of ways that dark matter doesn't act like regular matter. One is that we can't see it. It doesn't seem to be interacting with light. And because it's not interacting with light, light is just electromagnetism, it also doesn't do 
touch. It, it doesn't do collisions. So electro, like when you touch something, it's the electrons in your hand pushing against the electrons in the thing that you're touching. That's how, how you feel it. It's the electromagnetic force that's letting you feel things. Dark matter doesn't seem to do that. Um, and we know that because it, it seems to just pass through itself and other matter pretty easily. And we know that because of the, the way it's distributed in the universe. It doesn't form disks the way that regular matter does in space. It forms sort of blobs and disks form because of collisions between particles. Um, blobs are what you get when you don't have collisions between particles, you only have gravity. So, so we, we, the way that dark matter acts suggests that it can't just be regular matter, it has to be something, some different kind of matter. Um, why we think it's a kind of matter and not just sort of a, a gravitational effect that we don't understand is more complicated and has to do with uh, things we've learned from very large scale distributions of galaxies and the cosmo-microwave background. Um, and there is lots of discussion to be had there, but it definitely doesn't act like regular matter because it doesn't seem to do electromagnetism, which all regular matter does. Uh, Lucy, what was there before the Big Bang? What is the universe expanding into? That's from Tracy. <laughs> oh, I just, just I couldn't possibly answer that quickly. Um, what was there before the Big Bang? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know, do we? There, we don't know. Is, is don't there know. a certain point now, though, where there is something that, that there is something there's a little bit before the Big Bang that we understand? Is there? Well, I mean, to... I mean, there must have been some energy there, right? Because matter came out of it, and. You, you can't get matter out of nothing. I mean, this is more Peter's field than mine. So I, I imagine like some sort of energy field that then suddenly got turned into matter. Well, it, de it also depends on what you mean by Big Bang, because if you just mean the hot Big Bang, which is this just the theory that the universe was hot and small and dense in the past, then, then the inflationary epoch was before that, and that was where the universe was expanding very, very rapidly. And we have no information about what might have been before the inflationary epoch. And so you might have had the Bing Bang singularity, which is this idea of this infinitely dense sort of time, or you might not have. And we don't, we can't really speak to that at the moment with data. So we do now, we do now have some answer for before Big Bang, we have this uh, rapid inflationary period. Mm -hmm. But then yeah. we still have the so roughly what we, are we still talking about? Was it 10, 10 to the minus thirty seven, ten to the minus thirty six in terms of what yeah. we don't the period we don't know? Yeah, well so so the inflationary epoch was around ten to the minus thirty five seconds after whatever the beginning would have been. Um, and uh, and you know, before that we, we don't really we don't really know. Uh, question from Nancy. Uh, I've heard how other universes would likely function under different laws of physics. Would this be a 100% difference, or could some of our laws or principles bleed into theirs, like a Fifty Shades of Grey of the Multiverse? It's tricky, this, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, the maths would be the same, but that's, you know... I'm not familiar with the literary reference there, but the, um, uh, we could have some, we could have some of the same laws. I not read it then. It was, it was great watching physicists listen to that question because you're like, oh, that's good. That's good. oh, I'm out of my depth. <laughs> uh, I mean, some of the laws and 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 parameters could be the same depending on what uh, what the properties of the other multiverse place are. I mean, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, it is said that if you are near a black hole, this is also from Nancy. Uh, it said that if you, I don't know which uh, sadomasochistic book she's going to compare this particular law to, it might be Story of O, let's find out. Uh, it is said that if you're near a black hole, time slows down. My question is if our bodies can handle that physiologically, can our biology carry on or function at that slower pace? Um, we don't notice a difference. If you're there, you, you feel the same all the time as time is slowing down. It's just relative to other people that your time is different. 
Uh, Big Bang inflation uh, from a singularity and with inflation we get the early universe. The verbal description of this is always as a third party observer, that is someone removed from the outside of the universe. Surely this is not possible to describe a small object expanding to a cricket ball in a nanosecond, etc. Surely we are always inside the universe, not outside. Sure. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Question yeah, by not? Helen. Is it possible to maintain a bubble of breathable air underwater around a human's head? like in the shows so we could explore the sea ocean floor. Uh, Skyrim is a diver's helmet. Got been out of fashion for a few years, but that's basically what those were, the big goldfish bowl things were. They're quite hard though, because it's obviously buoyant. So if you walk around, you get a little bubble of air, and you do it with something called a dry suit as well. And if you carry a bubble of air with you, as you go down, unless it's um, in something very solid, it will get compressed. Uh, and that will cause you, that will make you less buoyant and then you will go down even further so so you can um it's much more efficient to just have breathing apparatus on scuba or with something called a rebreather um which means you don't blow out bubbles your air gets recycled but i mean you can and there are there's a there's a um aqua what's it called aqualab or something off florida there is a place where people go down uh and it's maybe 30 or 50 meters beneath the surface um, and people can live in it, Aquarius, that's what it is, and, and people can go and live there and then dive at that depth. And the reason for that is that when you're, when you're on scuba, um, you're breathing air at the pressure of the water around you because your lungs have to push out when you breathe in. They have to push out against all that water. And they can only do that if you've got more air at higher pressure on the inside of you to push back. Um, and what happens is that, I mean, your lungs are fine with that, but you have more nitrogen in the blood because to have higher pressure in the same volume of lungs, you have to have physically more gas in there. Um, and that nitrogen doesn't do you too much harm in the short term, but it's a nuisance if you have to keep putting it there and putting it back. So Aquarius says it's set up so you can go down and live in a bubble at the right pressure under the sea, and then you can go out and dive and come back and go out and dive and come back, and you don't have to keep repressurizing your body. So people have done things like that, but um, scuba's a lot easier, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, final question is, if any one astrophysical thing could be solved like that, snaps fingers inverted commas, <laughs> what would it be, why, and what would be the implications of it? Ooh, well, <clears throat> I think that there is a process that's really important in astrophysics that is called magnetic reconnection. Mm -hmm. And it's the way to get energy out of magnetic fields to power various phenomena across the entire universe. But because it's a process that likely happens on the size scale of meters, which we can't spatially resolve with our telescopes, it's really hard to um, get the details of this physical process. So if I could snap my fingers and understand one thing, it would be the detailed physics of magnetic reconnection. There is a, a, there's a, a bunch of satellites up right now trying to test that, right? I don't remember what they're called. But. There are. So we've got several that are looking into it. Um, there's the cluster spacecraft that have been up there since 2000. I think NASA's Swarm maybe is the one that's also looking at that. I forget mm. the details of that. I don't remember that, what though. it's called. Yeah, yeah so there are, there are lots of space missions. So there's two approaches. You can either look at the regions where it's happening, or you can try and fly through the regions where it's happening. Mm. And uh, for me, I look at it remotely, but flying through it, you can also get the details as well. But then you need to be in the right place at the right time, and mm. you need more than one spacecraft because you need to see what's the temporal variation and what's the spatial variation. So it's pretty challenging. Mm. Anyone else? Um, I mean, I, I just out of sort of selfish interest, I would love to know what dark matter is and how it works and, you know, if it, if it is really a thing and, and not just kind of a misunderstanding of some sort. But um, that would be great from my perspective. I like that you don't sound sure. 
there's not a misunderstanding well, of I mean, some sort. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's very good evidence that it's a, a new kind of particle of nature. Um, but uh, there, there continue to be people who say, oh, maybe, you know, if you alter gravity in just this way, and that doesn't work as well. Like, it just doesn't fit the data as well. Um, but, you know, there, there, there's still you know, in, in some places, discussion about that. So but I've, I've been down dark matter detectors. There's one underneath in South mm. Dakota somewhere. It's brilliant. It's in an old uh, gold mine, mm-hmm. a mile and a half underground. Yeah. And what's brilliant about it is that you go down this, into the middle of a rock, there's this posh lab, and in the corner, there is a stuffed toy unicorn. And I spotted this, and I said, oh, you've got a unicorn. They said, yes, because every night when we go home, even if we haven't seen dark matter, at least we've seen a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, something similar. Who was the person who had the lucky horseshoe? Physicist. Oh, who is that? Oh, I don't know. Oh, well, that's a question. They are. They are. Uh, thank you very much to uh, now three out of four of this panel. We'll be uh, continuing on the way to uh, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Perth, but not Katie Mack. Thank you very much, Katie. And uh, you can follow Katie on Twitter at AstroKatie. Uh, you can follow Matt at, at StandUpMaths. Correct. Now, Lucy, you've got, what's your one? Because there's an uh, underscore in there. D-R underscore Lucy. That, that. Despite and, being and promoted. Helen, you <laughs> no, I'm just telling Terry. So, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we hope to see you at one of the shows or back in the UK. Goodbye. Niels Bohr, by the way, if you want to. Niels Bohr. 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 Niels Bohr